But again, why do we, why do we take communion? The, the, the first thing is right there in 1 Corinthians 11. Do it in remembrance of Jesus, to remember. We do it to remember, to remember his body broken for us. But I think a secondary thing I always reflect on and remember when we take communion as a church. I mean, you all remember when we used to actually come up and take the cup and go back together. They used to get me all teary-eyed that, you know, we're, we're a family of faith doing this together. But even when we're doing it separate, even if you're doing it at home online, when, when I would be at home partaking in communion, I just think, man, not just of the body broken for us represented in that communion, but the body of Christ around the world that takes communion. I think of the Nicene Creed where it says we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, and the communion of saints, and how we're a part of that Catholic Church. And maybe you're thinking, wait a second, I thought this place was Pentecostal. What are you talking about? Where's your collar? No, that Catholic is lowercase c. It's talking about church universal, church global. All around the globe, there are Christians taking communion. The gospel is being preached, right? People are worshiping Jesus and the church is being built, and the gates of hell are not prevailing against it. Sometimes I think, I look at, I know I'm guilty. I focus so much on the American church and lament certain things. You got to zoom out. Remember, the church is being built all over the world, and the gates of hell are not prevailing against it. Y'all can clap for that. But then, like, a weekend like this weekend, July 4th weekend, Independence Day, we zoom back in. We remember that we get to worship God here in America where we have freedom of religion, where we can come in here and be loud, right? We're heard outside, and we don't have to worry about persecution. We don't have to worry about any of that because we have the freedom to worship God here. It's a beautiful thing, and I praise God for it. But we're also, you know, when we take advantage of our opportunities and freedoms here, we're also richly blessed, both figuratively and, and literally, you know. But when we take trips, as we often did annually before COVID, we would go to the Dominican Republic. You saw the videos, you saw the photos in, in that announcement. When I would go there annually, I would often remember, man, my definition of rich and poor is so shallow, right? It, mine's determined by Western culture, where rich and poor is determined by how much money you got in the bank, what your assets are. But when you go uh, uh, to La Guasara or, or somewhere else in the world and to discover different cultures and lifestyles, you realize there are other ways to be rich and poor. Like in La Guasara, they are so rich in their connection to God's creation. They're an agricultural village out in these beautiful hills in the Western Dominican Republic near the border with Haiti. And they've got this beautiful, rich community as well. Let me tell you, there are, when you're just there in the village, there are like cliques and, and gangs of just toddlers that just walk around. And, and they just walk up and down the street, and you're like, where are the parents? <laughs> but you realize that the longer you're there, everybody's looking out for everybody because everybody's related to somebody, and that's so-and-so's daughter's cousin and their cousin's daughter, and, and, and everybody's looking out for each other. Like at my house, if, if Raj goes off the porch, I want to be able to see him, right, let alone around the corner. I want my eyes on him at all times. They have such a rich community there. And I share that, and I point to this. This, this is Saul. He's nine years old now. If you've been to the Guasra, that's crazy. I met him when he was three. And uh, you talk about posses of toddlers. He used to be the leader. And we would, uh, you know, pull up in a pickup truck to build a latrine. And, you, and, and I'd say, Saul! And he'd say, Hugo! And we'd go back, Hugo's juice in Spanish. So we would shout that you'd hear it all over the village. They would just show up wherever you are. And what's crazy is he's nine now, but we knew him when he was three. We've taught him about the Bible and Bible school. I've thrown balls with him. I've wrestled him. I've thrown him in the air. <laughs> Fun story. I mean, he was piggyback, and 
There were golden showers. Let's just put it that way. That's happened with multiple kids. But, so we, we bonded in, in ways, you know, like uh, his sister, Angelica, I met her when she was a newborn. She's now four or five and being sponsored by Sam, which is awesome. Got sponsored just last week. And one last story. I know this is just a lot, but his dad once, we got back from construction. And their house isn't far from where we, we would sleep. And he, he, he's got his military garb on. He's in the military. He's got a machete in one hand. And he waves me over. And he takes me back into like this forest of sugar cane. I didn't know it was sugar cane at the time. I just knew he had took me back into some woods where nobody could see me. I was like, this is going to end one of two ways. And he, of course, because they're such gracious hosts, cuts me some of his sugar cane and lets us all begin to sample it. But I share all that because if you've been there, like Amanda, Clem, all these different faces I'm seeing that have been there, as friends of these families, let me implore you, if you've never sponsored a kid from La Guasara, do it this week. We only have these sponsorship packets through next weekend. So if you're on the fence, let me push you off of it. <laughs> and let me challenge you as a pastor in this family of faith. Come on, we are so richly blessed. We're reminded of that this weekend, Independence Day weekend. Let's be a blessing. And let's, let's I challenge you, there's 10 more out there. I might claim this one because I love this kid so much. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see what the budget says. But there are 10 more out there. Let's claim those tonight and knock those out the parks. So we don't have to worry about it next week. But if you grab one on the way in, make sure you fill out the form. Leave it there on the way out. And if you're online, you're thinking, man, I want to get my hands on one, just email me personally, justin at citylifeva.com. We'll get that all worked out. But to continue tonight, we are starting a series, summer series called Conversations, Dialogue with the Divine. These instances in Scripture where people have a conversation with be it God the Father, maybe Jesus Christ, maybe the Holy Spirit, but they have a conversation with God. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 4. We're going to start towards the beginning of our Bible as we start this series. Genesis chapter 4, you can turn there, you can swipe there. And as you're doing that, you know, as we're still talking about Laguasara, I want to give a shout out to uh, honor a friend named Cece. Cece, uh, he's a legend. If you ever went to Laguasara, he's a legend because he has a family over there in Haiti, and he used to cross the border at an immense personal cost with a fake ID <laughs> to come volunteer with Food for the Hungry and just build the trains for families that needed it. I mean, this guy's a legend. He just wanted to serve. He lived to serve. And I share this to honor him because he actually passed away last summer at the peak of COVID. So I share this to honor him, <laughs> but also because as we start this series about conversations, when we would go down there annually, eventually you get to know these people. Even though there's a language barrier, there's translators. But Cece and I would always try to find a way to park it on these two big rocks that kind of oversaw the village. And we try to catch up. Now, mind you, Cece knew about this much English. My fingers are together. And I knew about un poco de espanol. So for about 30 to 40 minutes, we would just murder, butcher, mangle each other's languages as we tried to catch up. And we probably understood maybe 30 to 40% of what each other was saying. But we just had this desire to get to, to connect with each other. I could see he was an amazing person, and he wanted to get to know me. So we would just sit there and mangle each other's language, barely understanding each other, because we wanted to connect. We wanted to converse. Usually after about 30 to 40 minutes, he'd take out his flip phone, and he'd start showing me, you know, video of his, his newborn and infant. And, and then I would pull out my iPhone, and I'd show him videos of Raj, and we connect on that level. But for all the frustration, and that's mentally exhausting, to, to try to converse when you're speaking really two different languages. We did it because it's fulfilling. 
Because there's this desire as human beings, like, I want to connect with you. I want to converse with you. And we were created with this desire. And if the past year of disconnect and COVID has taught us anything, it's that connecting and conversing as humans, it's more than just an itch we want to scratch. It's what makes us healthy human beings. That's why Zoom went from like, what's a Zoom? To now everybody's on Zoom, right? It's a household name. Because we don't want to go without connecting and conversing. And we shouldn't. Because we were created by God to connect and converse. God spoke us into existence, and we, created in his image, were created to speak and converse with one another. And you know, there's all kinds of theological takes about what it means that we were created in God's image. There's different angles you can take with that, but I would say one of them has to be this ability to speak and have conversation. We're the one creature created in his image, and we're the one creature that can speak to each other like we do through language and conversation. And this gift of language. And what's interesting then is you have countering viewpoints on creation like Darwin and his origin of species. But language nearly toppled his theory from the start. Because language can't be explained by natural selection. Language can't be explained by survival of the fittest. It's it, it, the complexity and what happens in your brain. It, it's beyond the explanations of evolution. Matter of fact, Darwin had a friend, his name was Alfred Wallace, who helped him come up with his theories, helped him uh, pen everything he wrote. And for Alfred Wallace, in his mind, this ability to reason and speak and, and converse through language was, was so transcendent above their theories that he was like, it's just got to be a gift from some supreme being. It's where he settled. It's got to be a gift from some divine power. And over a century later, science still bows to just what is, not, what is language? How do we have this gift of language? And as an English major, right, in college, I was studying the English language. It's always fascinated me. It's like it's a divine gift. And as much as Cece and I were fumbling it back and forth for 30 minutes at a time over those years, we were handling a gift that God gave us as humans to connect with one another. See, God spoke us into existence, and we were created in his image to speak and converse. And not just with one another either, but with him. We have this itch to, to connect with and converse with God, whether we deny it or ignore it or don't practice it. I mean, there was a book written in 2004 called Jesus Calling. It's like a, a devo written as if Jesus is talking to you daily. It's sold nearly 40 million copies since. <laughs> it's like we are hungry for God to speak to us. It's almost like, oh, I don't know, uh, we aren't supposed to live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God that nourishes us. And not just words put in his mouth by modern authors, we have the living word of God given to us. And I wanna turn again tonight to Genesis chapter four, to this account of, we call it Cain and Abel, I wanna look at Cain and God and their conversations. We're gonna start in verse two. Verse 2, it says, when they grew up, speaking of Cain and Abel, Abel became a shepherd while Cain cultivated the ground. And when it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best of the firstborn lambs from his flock. Now, the Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. Why are you so angry, the Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right, but if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, 
eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. One day, Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Afterward, the Lord asked Cain, where is your brother? Where is Abel? I don't know, Cain responded. Am I my brother's guardian? But the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are cursed and banished from the ground, which has swallowed your brother's blood. No longer will the ground yield good crops for you, no matter how hard you work. From now on, you will be a homeless wanderer on the earth. Cain replied to the Lord, my punishment is too great for me to bear. You have banished me from the land and from your presence. You have made me a homeless wanderer. Anyone who finds me will kill me. The Lord replied, no, for I will give a sevenfold punishment to anyone who kills you. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain to warn anyone who might try to kill him. So Cain left the Lord's presence and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. It's a lot of text, so let's pray. God, I pray that you would use your word tonight to do many things, but remind us, Lord God, that as we continue to read scripture, you see that we per you pursue us even east of Eden. God, you pursue us even in our failings. You pursue us on the good days and the bad days. You're a good shepherd on the good, the bad, and the in-between, God. So I pray that you would meet us here tonight, speak to us, Holy Spirit, through your word, and everybody said amen. How many here have a, a sibling? Boy, girl, brother, sister. I got two sisters, one older, one younger. And I got a younger brother, three years younger than me, but like three feet taller. No, he, I, I didn't make it to six feet. He made it well past that. He's like 6'4". And uh, I don't remember at what age we were like neck and neck, but our childhood was competitive, right? Because we were about the same size. And I was the older brother. I'm going to lose to him. So basketball, video games, board games, whatever. Y'all remember the Fisher-Price tournament table from like 92? Anybody? Thank you, right? It had, uh, it had table tennis, it had air hockey without the air, and it had pool. So we would just, everything, you know, like it was, I mean, it was like this big because it's for kids, but, but we would go to town on everything. It was competitive. I mean, we're talking down to food. My mom can bake well, like anything. She just makes it, and it's amazing. And she'd have to tell my brother and I, like, hey, you get one cookie and then get out of here, right? Otherwise, it'd be gone within two minutes, right? She would, she would give us rations. It's a, it's a miracle my sisters didn't starve, like in their childhood. And <laughs> maybe, maybe if, if you're young, you're like, okay, what's the secret? Well, how do I not get stuck at 5'9 like you, and how do I get to 6'3", to 6'4"? Six six well, you should probably, I don't know if you've met Fred's son. <laughs> Ethan, you in here? You should ask Ethan me, show, how do I, how do I get to be your size? And not ask me, because he actually counts his macros and micros, if that's a thing, and like exercises. My brother's secret, this is like when they ask, rabbit, this is like when they ask people that are like over 100 on the news, what's your secret? And they're like, I drink Diet Dr. Pepper every night, right? <laughs> You're like, oh, okay. My brother's secret to how we got to be six foot three, six foot four, is we, we slept on a bunk bed, and he was on the bottom. So under the, the under, not under his mattress, but under the bed, he kept the holy trinity of marshmallows, peanut butter, and pretzels. If they were not in the pantry, you knew all the under Christian's bed because he's eating them at night again. Like, I'd be asleep. This is, how he, this is how he lapped me in terms of height. I'm up there asleep at 1130. He's down here in the dark with his growing pains just eating more and more like, like Bane, right? Just in the darkness. And he, and he got, that's how he got to be tall. But yeah, you probably want to talk to Ethan about how to be big and strong. But I share all that because Cain and Abel is a story about two brothers that's kind of become just mythical. 
Like, you don't have to go to church to know about Cain and Abel. You ask somebody, hey, you know about Cain and Abel? We'll say, yeah. The one dude killed the other dude, right? The good brother got killed by the bad brother. And, and like, that's the story. Yeah, I know the story. And I think because it's so mythical and, and it's such, so big and large in our day that we sometimes overlook some of the details. Like, we've got Cain and Abel, and in our minds, Abel was good, Cain was bad, right? Abel was holy, Cain was a murderer. And in, in our childish impulse to have good guys and bad guys, and our cultural impulse to have black and white, Cain just gets the short end of the stick. He's an evil dude from the outset. We look down on Cain, right? We read scripture, we, we like to think we're better than Cain. We think of him as godless. But in a matter of words, in the passage we just read, he's shown himself to understand worship far better than most people in the church today. Think about this. When Cain comes to worship God, he doesn't go to spectate. When Cain goes to worship God, he doesn't go to get fed. When Cain goes to worship God, he doesn't go to get his needs met. No, Cain came to God to give an offering. He realized worship starts with sacrifice and offering and giving back to God for all he's done with, for us, not consumption and spectating. He's not over here watching Abel's sacrifice like, hey, I co-signed that. <laughs> like, put me on that tab, right? No, he came with an offering. And when my worship becomes about my needs and my consumption and having my back scratched spiritually, it's no longer worship. Or it is worship, but it's worshiping me and not God. See, we not Cain, but we should ask if our worship even looks like his an act of giving to God. And I say all this because when, I know I'm guilty of it, when I read scripture, I'm always David. <laughs> I'm Jesus, I'm Paul, I'm the good guys. I'm never these people over here. But I'm never the people with the issues. But in this case, many of us haven't even made it to Cain's level yet, <laughs> let alone Abel's. See, Cain brought an offering. He wasn't like plain evil. He brought an offering. He wasn't over here sacrificing like to Molech. He's, he's offering something to God. It says in Genesis 4, 3, when it was time for harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Again, he, he's worshiping the right God. And, and we got to remember like maybe it's sobering, maybe it's a, a, a warning for us. This story begins here in a place of worship, gathering before God to worship before it all spirals out of control. But he brings his offering and he brought crops because he farms. Like, connect the dots. Abel tended livestock, so he brought livestock. Cain's was rejected. Abel's wasn't. Now, if you want to go down a rabbit hole, a whole ocean of ink has been spilled over why, what was right with Abel's offering, what was wrong with Cain's offering, and many point to laws about sacrifice, but those had not even been handed down yet. And then it also says here that it was an offering. Not a sacrifice, but an offering. And an offering in the Bible can be all kinds of things, including grains and crops. And what's funny to me is, is we don't even have to look outside the Bible. In Hebrews 11:4, in this chapter about faith, it says of Cain and Abel, it says, by faith, Abel brought a better offering than Cain did. It was by faith he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he's dead. I love the message version. It says, it was what he believed, not what he brought that made the difference. How often are we guilty though? I know I'm guilty sometimes of offering God my leftovers. Like I, I, like, I was like, man, I didn't pray tonight. And you're just in bed. It's like, well, I got a couple minutes here real quick. And you start praying and before you know it, it's the morning, your alarm's going off, right? How often are we guilty of giving God our leftovers? How often are we guilty of, of, of just checking the box, going through the motions as we worship? 
probably way often than we, way more often than we'd like to admit. Maybe some of you already felt a prick of guilt because during worship, as we were all jamming out to these old songs, I don't even know what that is, right? You're thinking, what am I gonna order tonight for dinner after this dude finally stops talking, right? <laughs> right? How often do we just check the box? But praise God, we see here with Cain, God's a God of grace. His response isn't anger. God's response is the one we see often in Scripture. It's a response of grace. And I think it's worth noting that the author of Genesis seems significantly less concerned with why one offering was accepted and one wasn't, and far more concerned with what happens after. What's God's response and what's Cain's response? Again, we so often think of it as Cain and Abel, but I want to look at God and Cain, God's response and Cain's response in their conversation. See, God meets Cain in Cain's anger, and he asks these questions. And the second one is, why do you look so dejected? You'll be accepted if you do what is right. See, when we screw up, God isn't just itching and waiting to, to just cross your name out of the book of life. God meets Cain even in his seemingly failed offering and extends grace. But confronted by grace, Cain doesn't apologize. He doesn't ask for a redo. He just begins to stew in this envy. And that envy turns into anger. And that anger eventually turns into his violent act against Abel. You know, there's a classic play called Amadeus. And in this play, we meet a, a character, Salieri, who himself, when we meet him in this play, is blessed. He's got the favor of the emperor. He's got talent. He's got the admiration of the public. He's got a good job. And then along comes Mozart. Mozart has the behavior of like a juvenile, but he composes music like a prodigy. And Salieri immediately sees his talent. And as Mozart becomes more and more prominent, Salieri be becomes more and more jealous to the point he's like, I got to do something about him. And we see even in the play that Salieri tragically comes to believe that Mozart was loved and favored by God, but he wasn't. The same way Cain was provoked by favor on Abel, Salieri feels betrayed that Mozart will be blessed with more talent. Again, the irony is Salieri was talented. He was blessed. And he falls into the same trap that Cain did. So consumed with somebody else's favor, he was blind to his own blessing. Blind to his own blessing. That's what Cain's issue was. He was so fixated on Abel's favor that he was blind to do his own blessing. Maybe you say, what blessing? Like one translation said, God frowned upon Cain and his sacrifice. He frowned upon Cain. But here in Genesis 4, we see God smiling upon Cain. Like, look, Cain, in, in, we don't know how long after the sacrifice, but God comes to him. And, and Cain is standing there graced by the very presence of God. He is holding a conversation with God Almighty. Like tonight, if this roof just blew off and the heavens opened and God spoke to you personally into your life, would you not feel blessed? Would you not feel favored? Right, the baseline of this experience Cain is having is blessing. God's presence is our greatest treasure in life. And here God is present with him saying, look, I'll even bless you if you just walk in obedience like Abel did, if you do what is right. But the enemy's favorite strategy is to blind us to our own blessings. And his favorite tool to do that is comparison. And I use the word tool intentionally because it's a tool. You can use a hammer to build a house. You can use a hammer to kill somebody, right? It, it all depends on how you use it. Jesus uses comparison, right? With Martha and Mary, he's like, Martha, look at what Mary's doing. Or when the widow gives her pennies, like, disciples, come look at this, come look at this. Look what the rich did and look what she's doing, right? God calls us to healthy comparison where it's not for condemnation, <laughs> it's for capturing our heart. 
for, for inspiration. That's why God calls us to comparison. When it's done in a healthy way with a healthy heart, it leads to inspiration. It leads to imitation. If Paul could say to people reading his letter, hey, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But the other side of inspiration is envy. And Cain wasn't inspired to worship like Abel or, or imitate his obedience. He took issue with his brother, and jealousy and envy crept into his heart. So much so, again, that he feels lacking, but he's standing in the very presence of a gracious God. Again, Cain is so infatuated with Abel's sacrifice's favor that it's like he can't see that God is in this moment exercising favor on his life by literally holding a conversation with him. The enemy has blinded him with bitterness to, to this moment of blessing. But it's like Cain's eyes are sadly open to the blessings that he had been missing all this time when, when God declares his punishment. Because Cain says, you have banished me from the land and from your presence. Man, if only Cain could have echoed the sentiment of David in Psalm 16 where he says, Lord, you alone are my inheritance, my cup of blessing, and the land you have given me is a pleasant land. We see David praise God for the land and his presence, the very same thing that Cain was blinded to when he was consumed with Abel's favor. You know, how good would Cain's next sacrifice have been if he had offered it from that heart and that perspective? What if Cain had eyes to see the blessing he was already in? Would that not have sparked an appropriate response of worship that would have been pleasing to God? But he was blind to his own blessings because he was so consumed with the favor Abel had experienced. Look, until I see the blessing, presence, and provision of God all around me, I'll never be able to offer Abel's worship, the kind that comes from faith and gratitude and pleases God. That's why I've got that verse from Psalm 16 hanging in my closet. It's also my prayer closet. If you've met Raj, you know I probably had to pray in my closet, right? <laughs> I've got that verse. Uh, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places on that wall. Because let me be honest. Part of the reason I'm preaching this sermon is I've lived this sermon <laughs> from Cain's shoes. Like the, the path God has my precious family on is unique, right? It's just unique. Let's leave it at that. Let's not even get into it. It's unique, right? From the schedule to, to, to brain surgeries to, to diagnoses, all that stuff. It, it, it's crazy sometimes. But, you know, all those burdens come from beautiful blessings, beautiful responsibilities. We prayed for Raj for like half a decade, if not more, right? So like when, when, when we got appointments and stuff, it, it seems like, man, that is a blessing. That's all flowing from that blessing. And you know, though, like when you have unique, maybe it's a unique season in life or just a unique path in life, it can be a recipe for comparison. Those folks over there start looking like Mozart to me. And I can get so consumed with the Joneses and what they got going on that instead of, I do that instead of focusing on Jesus and how he's, he's with me present with me in everything I'm going through. And then here I am standing in a season of blessing, and I'm comparing. <laughs> here I am, if I'm not careful, standing in a season of blessing, and I'm complaining. But I share this personal journey because I say it's unique, but it's not all that unique. We all have struggles. We all walk through pain. We all have seasons that just plain hurt, right? And again, in those seasons, it's so easy to start comparing. But let me remind you, in every season, we're all blessed because God is with us in it. You know, sometimes God speaks and he sparks conversations. You know, maybe, maybe God is speaking to you tonight, hopefully through worship and his word and, and this sermon. But sometimes, you know, through common grace, he might speak to a, a secular rap artist <laughs> on Spotify while you're watching the dishes. There's an, old, 
There's an old song called Love Yours, and it's spelled with Love Yours with a Z because it's a rap song, where the chorus says, there's no such thing as a life that's better than yours. Love yours. Again, secular <laughs> rap song with words I don't even want Raj repeating in it. And it's just playing while I'm washing the dishes. And you would have thought it was a worship song. I'm getting all weepy. Like, just this reminder. Like, there, there's, there's nothing better than my life. <laughs> Y'all laugh, but it was emotional for me. <laughs> and I started thinking and journaling. It was like a conversation that God started, and it, it went over months where, man, I just realized I can have the heart of Cain where I'm consumed with what's going on over there and the blessings of others, or I can have the heart of David, right, content in the blessings that I'm walking in. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. And if you find yourself where I found myself in the past, right, rocking cane shoes, where I'll probably find myself again and have to repent, right, this is the prescription that's worked for me. Fall in love with your life again. Like, fall in love with your life. So, so often, like, the enemy... Satan will be like, hey, yeah, those boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places, but if you looked over that fence, that grass is pretty green, bro, right? Like he just wants comparison to take root in our hearts. Man, let me tell you, blessings come with responsibilities. I already hit on it a little bit earlier. And sometimes blessings even come with burdens. That, that, song can, that word can sound negative, but burdens aren't always negative, right? And it's because God blessed you with this that guess what? You now have to steward it. And the enemy loves to make the act of stewarding and the work and the burden, make that blessing start to taste bitter, right? Like we get the, the platform we prayed for, and then we stress about the weight of it. We get the job we prayed for, and then we start complaining about the work. We get the house we prayed for, and then, man, it's a lemon, right? We get the children we prayed for, and, man, they're a pain. I wish they'd sleep. Or we get <laughs> that spouse we prayed for for years, and they're like, man, this person's a headache. Eyes on me, don't amen, right? <laughs> like, you, all these things you prayed for, and then it comes along, you got to steward it, you got to work it, all those responsibilities. But the enemy loves to take all that and make your blessings feel like a burden. Well, no, those are just, that's just the burden of stewardship and being responsible with those, those blessings God has given me. He loves to make them taste bitter. Fall in love with your life. You have to fall so in love with your life that nobody else's life can steal your joy, can steal your worship, can steal your contentment. Because my worship... I worship a Jesus who said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And when the life is present in my life, I've always got a reason to worship. Right? That's what the rapper missed in his song. Like, the reason I can say there's no life that's better than mine is because if it's God's plan and he's called me to it and he's with me in it, then I can say what David said in Psalm 138.8, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. I'm going to stay in my lane. <laughs> I'm going to stay in the, the boundary lines he's placed for me because if this is his purpose, he's going to see me through it. And there's nothing better than that, than to know God is with you because God has called you to it. I've always got a reason to praise him if he's with me. And no burden can derail the blessing of his presence. Look, life, <laughs> young people, <laughs> life is going to do this. And maybe like Cain, your faithfulness in seasons might look like this. But God is like this. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And nothing that happens changes that. No burden can derail the blessing of his presence. But like we see with Cain, the enemy will come knocking. And again, his favorite strategy is to turn our blessings bitter. And his favorite tool is unhealthy comparison. And when comparison is taking root like this, the, the fruit is envy and sin. And God, though, again, in his grace, he has this conversation with Cain where he's trying to help him deal with what he's wrestling with. He says again in verse 7, you will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. 
Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. Again, God is actively extending grace here. He's present with Cain. He's conversing with Cain. He's saying, look, you'll be fine if you just choose what's right. Look, blessing wasn't absent, like waiting for Cain somewhere else. No, blessing was at home with him. Relationship with God is what we're created for. Yes, we're broken by sin. Yes, we, we, we all, we've all fallen, but we were created and intended for relationship with God, conversations with God. Sin's the stranger. Sin's the one that's outside the door waiting to see if, if Cain would let him in. And I love that the, the Bible uses the word crouching. I've shared this before. Uh, Raj, I mean, he's addicted to all kinds of like shows and movies. He gets fixated on one. We probably watched Moana like, over a thousand times in my household. But when he's getting ready for bed, we want something more calming. So how many of you know there's nothing more calming than, than the, the poetic British accent of David Attenborough narrating nature shows? Like somehow Raj got hooked on David Attenborough to the point where he likes dolphins, he likes elephants, but don't go trying to play one of those Disney documentaries narrated by like Sigourney Weaver or Natalie Portman because 30 seconds in, he hears it's not David Attenborough. He starts going, show, show, show. It's his way of saying, hey, y'all gotta, y'all gotta change this. But then you put on David Attenborough, he's cool. So with our streaming platforms and the way our life is set up, that means we can watch Blue Planet season two or Our Planet on Netflix every night for the rest of our lives. <laughs> and so currently, update, we are hooked on Blue Planet season two, episode three, Coral Reefs. But this time, probably last year, it was Our Planet episode seven, Fresh Water. And in that episode, about 30 minutes in, Every night is, you know, at this point, Roger's fading, but I'm just laying there like, I'm never going to regret that time, right? But I'm, <laughs> sometimes I'm like, man, I could be doing so many other things, but I'm just laying there. I'm watching this episode for the 475th time, and halfway through it, there's a jaguar, and it's hunting capybara. If you don't know what capybara is, don't worry about it. I didn't know what a capybara was either until I started watching this show. And what happens with the jaguar and other cats, whether it's your house cat or, or other cats that hunt prey, when, when, when they see prey, what they do is they crouch. They get small, right? The jaguar just gets low because when the capybara looks at him, he wants him to think, oh, that, that, the small thing over there. You know, the jaguar's like, oh, it's a little old me. <laughs> I ain't gonna hurt anything. Just mind your business. Nothing to see over here. Just wants to look small because it's hunting prey. You know, sin does that with us. I'm small. <laughs> I'm not gonna hurt anybody. I'm not going to hurt anything. You could be doing so many worse things than this right now. Wants to look small. But God tells Cain, look, sin wants to have you. Right? Sin wants to possess you. You probably heard it said before. I don't know who said it first. Sin will always take you further than you want to go, for longer than you want to go, at a cost that's greater than you want to pay. Sin wants to have you is what God says to Cain. But look, God is at Cain's side in this moment. It's like he's in Cain's corner. The translation, in one translation, he says to Cain, you can conquer it, right? You, you got sin at your door, but you can do this. It's like he's coaching him. And I don't know where you are tonight in life, but God wants to be in your corner. We were created, again, for relationship with God, at home with God, in his presence. Not a life that invites sin in the door. But God gives us the volition and the ability to, to choose how we extend our invitations. Who are you inviting in? But Cain shows us. Look, you can give God your envy and let him remove it. You can internalize that envy and jealousy and comparisons and get depressed, or you can externalize it and get violent, which is exactly what Cain does with his brother. He invites Abel into a field thinking, hey, nobody's going to see this. Invites him out into a field and kills him, murders him. 
But of course God sees him. <laughs> and we see again, God meets him, pursues him, comes to him. And again, we get a conversation. And again, we see God's response and we see Cain's response. First, God's response. And at this point in the story, we realize this, this story is less about Cain and Abel. We're beginning to realize, oh, this is about the faithfulness of God. It's about God's goodness and grace, even in the punishment, even in the curse. Because God pursues, God provides, God protects. He's so gracious. Again, his presence is our greatest blessing, and God pursues Cain. He pursued Cain. He showed up at, when, God, when Cain was downcast after his failed offering. He, he pursued him after his lukewarm worship, and he's even still pursuing him after he's murdered his brother, and his hands are still stained with blood. And what you need to hear tonight, and I want you to hear tonight, is it is never too late for God's grace. The enemy would love for you to think you're disqualified, you're too far gone. If anybody was too far gone, it's Cain. God literally said to him, hey, bro, sin is here. If you do this, this is going to happen. And then steps back, Cain does it, and it happens. And yet God still pursues him after he kills his brother. And I love that God leads with questions. He asks questions. He doesn't lead with the, the, the confrontation and the condemnation. No, he starts with, with questions. Not for information, right? God knew exactly what had happened to Abel. His blood was crying out to him from the ground. He leads with questions because I believe it gives Cain space to repent, to open up his heart so he can let that sin out and let God in again. He asks questions. We see that God's response is grace. Even in the consequences we read about of Cain's sin and the curse that comes. And as for Cain's response here, it's kind of open-ended. It's kind of debated. You know, the, the Bible I grew up reading, it says in there that Cain replied to the Lord, my punishment is too great for me to bear. It's like he's complaining about his punishment, but not really remorseful for what he did. Like when you punish your kid and you're like, you ain't gonna have your iPhone for two weeks, and they're like, oh, but, but dad, right? They're complaining about the punishment, but they don't really care about what they did. That's what it sounds like Cain is doing here in this instance with God, but in some Bibles, there's a footnote. Or in some translations, it plain says this word can also be translated sin or iniquity. And when you say it that way, like, God, my punishment, or excuse me, my sin is too great for me to bear, it begins to sound like repentance. And some would say that God's gracious response of protection would seem to indicate that Cain's expression wasn't a complaint, but lament for his sin and what he'd done. But again, it's pretty open. And it leaves it open for us tonight, not so that we can all debate what Cain's response was, but I believe so we can determine what our response will be. Maybe you're like, bro, I ain't kill nobody. <laughs> I'm not a murderer. But again, to go all the way back, this story starts in a place of worship where Cain was offering up just lukewarm worship, just checking the box, going through the motions. If I could have the worship team come out, you know, that's, a, that's a, in the first pages of Scripture. If you start getting towards the back, it's in Revelations 3.20 where Jesus is speaking through John, right, to the church in Laodicea if I said that right, <laughs> and he, he says, you're lukewarm. You're just going through the motions, and I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. But he also says, look, I stand at the door, and I'm knocking. Right? I stand at the door and knock, and if you open that door, I'm going to come in, and we're going to share a meal together as friends. I love how the Bible is bookended by these images of doors, and somebody's knocking. In Genesis with Cain, it's sin, but in Revelation to this church, it's Jesus. People that were in this place of worship, but they were lukewarm. People that were in this place of worship, but they were just checking the boxes. 
They're going on their way with sin, thinking, I'll just come here, check the box, and I'm safe. Look, I, I never read the book, Jesus is Calling, <laughs> but based on Revelation 3.20, I can tell you tonight, Jesus is calling. He's pursuing every one of you. He's knocking. The question is, how are we going to respond? That's what the story of Cain and God is all about. How does God respond, and how does Cain respond to God's response? God's response to whatever you've been going through in life is he's still pursuing you, still wants to be in your corner. Whether or not you've let him in the door or you've let sin in the door, God wants you to open up your heart to him tonight. You can make that exchange. We're going to have an opportunity to respond with prayer, but we're going to go into to worship first. And I don't know, maybe, maybe you or I was in life at times where you've just allowed your blessings to become bitter. You've been consumed by the burden of responsibility and forgot that, that all this is tethered to this gigantic blessing over here. Whether it's due to comparison or just the grind, man, I pray that we would be able to shift our perspective again to the, to the giver of all good gifts and that our, our, our intent and our pursuit wouldn't be to fill our life with rewards, but to fill our life with the one who rewards. Not to fill our life with the gift, but to fill our life with the gift giver. Jesus, as we prepare our hearts to worship, we thank you. We thank you, God, that, that you bring us to, to some blood. The same way you pointed to Abel's blood in the ground for Cain, you point us to blood, but it's not the blood of Abel that condemns. It's the blood of Jesus that cleanses. It's the blood of Jesus that restores. It says in Hebrews that the blood of Jesus gives a greater testimony than that of Abel because Abel's is of condemnation. <laughs> Abel's is of our sin. Jesus's is of forgiveness, <laughs> salvation, God's grace, God's mercy. So I pray that each one of us as we come and we worship and we praise that we would make whatever exchange is needed whether it's comparison for gratitude <laughs> a sin habit for a habit of pursuing you whatever it is we need to put down so we can pick something up tonight i pray that we would realize that that you are waiting with open arms like the prodigal father waiting like jesus in revelation 3:20, just knocking waiting for us to open the door i pray that our response would be one of worship not just with words in a song even though that's beautiful but a life of worship that's full of gratitude and praise and a pursuit of you. But God, we start that right now, even in our worship and even in our praise. We're going to come back for prayer, but let's worship Jesus together for all he is and all he's done. Let's stand and sing.